Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. The second lesson from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I will read chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are occasions when we wear, when what we wear on the outside is supposed to reflect what we feel on the inside. You and I know this. Each of us has likely experienced times when there has been a discrepancy between the two, when, for whatever reason, what you are wearing does not match how you are feeling at the moment. At the former church I served, Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, All the clergy, all 11 of us, had a Sunday dress code, even when we were not leading worship. In order to be recognizable among the 2,000 to 3,000 worshipers each Sunday, we wore black suits with our white clergy collars. It took me a while to get used to my dress code. And there were times when I forgot what I was wearing, when I forgot how I appeared on the outside. (laughs) 
Once, when after the last coffee hour was over, I ran an errand at the Borders bookstore just a block away from the church and was standing in the longest checkout line. I wondered why it was moving like molasses. Everyone was wondering the same thing, I'm sure. I heard some moans and groans around me, but when I, in my exasperation, said aloud to myself, oh my gosh, <laughs> I immediately noticed at least three strangers looking at me, one woman rather disgustedly. <laughs> Their attention was no longer on the line, it was on me. Hmm, turned into, oh, I was still wearing my clergy collar. I had forgotten to remove it and leave it in my office. There are times when what we wear on the outside is supposed to match what we feel on the inside. A wedding is one of those times. A wedding is a special occasion. For the bride and the groom, it may be the most special occasion in their lifetime. There is so much love at a wedding. At a wedding, the bride and groom hide nothing of their deepest desires because on that day, they are giving their hearts to one another. While typically it is hard, impossible really, to see the heart of another person, at a wedding, the love that a bride and groom have for one another and for God and for all the people assembled is made visible in the details. It's made visible in the hospitality that's offered from the invitations sent to the sweets that will be tasted, in the promises they make, the rings they put on, and the lovely wedding garments they are wearing. Given the loving effort that is poured into every detail of a wedding, given that a wedding is supposed to be the epitome of such occasions when how we feel on the inside is supposed to correspond with how we appear on the outside, it makes sense that the king who is throwing a wedding banquet for his son becomes very angry that people just don't get it. They don't get the momentousness of the love that is being offered. Some turn down the invitation from the beginning. What a disappointment. Others accept it and come. But even then, the host wonders if people really grasp, really take to heart the love being offered. When he sees someone who did not make an effort even to dress for the occasion but is still hanging around, his anger is piqued and he throws him out. The ideal that one's inner heart is supposed to correspond with one's outward appearance is expressed throughout the Bible. So prevalent an ideal, we find it in the wisdom that is passed down from generation to generation in the book of Proverbs. Kay read those verses to us in which our deepest, most heartfelt commitments of loyalty and faithfulness are to be worn on our bodies like precious gems. My child, the parent says, do not let loyalty and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck like a necklace and write them on the tablet of your heart. 
The ideal, back then and still today, was integrity between what is written on our hearts and what is visible in our outward appearance. The ideal was expressed when the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the people about the covenant God made with Israel when the Lord said, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. It was expected that those who are in covenantal relationship with God would manifest their love and faithfulness in their outward actions. We hear this ideal of integrity expressed also when the Apostle Paul spoke to new converts, saying, Clothe yourselves in Christ. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Matthew writes his gospel at a time when the church is new and he is distressed by the mixed state of the church. In his view, there were false prophets and false followers whose hearts did not correspond with the gospel of Christ. They lacked integrity. He understands Jesus as addressing this mixed nature of reality. When Jesus tells parables about weeds growing among wheat and sorting rotten fish from good fish, in the parable we heard this morning, Jesus makes the point that the demand for integrity applies to everyone, Gentiles as well as Jews. God's grace and covenant is extended to everyone, good and bad. And when it is truly received, it should make a thorough difference on the inside and the outside. For those early Christians in Matthew's community, when they heard the word robe, they thought of one thing, the baptismal robe. Baptism meant not just water and words. It meant that one was truly receiving God's grace and covenant and was prepared to put on Christ. Baptism was the occasion when, like at a wedding, One's whole identity is recreated. In baptism, we are remade. We are not as we were before. In baptism, we are made different by Christ. The old life is gone, and the new life has begun. These are radical words. We say some version of these radical words nearly every week. Baptism in Christ is supposed to make that big of a difference. What I really want to think about with you is what that difference is. What is that old life that is supposed to be gone, that we are supposed to let go of, to let die? And what does the new life feel like and look like? In order to address this question, I think it's necessary to name an observation. The observation is that too often we conflate being made different by Christ with our need to make a difference. I'll repeat that. 
Too often we conflate being made different by Christ with our need to make a difference. I do it all the time, and I suspect you do too. We strive to make a difference in every arena of our lives, and especially if we take our baptism and discipleship to heart, we think that being a Christian requires us to have a purpose-driven, mission-driven life. We want to be go-getters, driven, effective, and innovative. So we organize ourselves and plan smartly so that we can do more, reach more, serve more, witness more, solve more. We work more and hurry more, and even when we squeeze in our Sabbath rest or a sabbatical, it is for the sake of doing more. In a book entitled, When the Church Stops Working, that Sarah introduced to me, authors Andrew Root and Blair Bertrand describe this phenomenon, which pervades our culture and, unfortunately, our churches. The anxiety that we aren't doing enough, that we don't have enough, and that if we don't do more, we will fall behind or we will not be true to our mission is a symptom, they think, of a secularism that trains us to keep our attention on the future instead of the moment we are in, the people we are with, and that perpetuates the illusion that there is nothing beyond what we create, control, and see. These Secular assumptions underlie our anxiety that we don't have enough to do enough to make enough of a difference in our world. For Christians who follow Jesus Christ as their example, no matter how powerfully these secular assumptions pervade the air we breathe and shape the forces that impinge on our lives, we are called to be in the world differently. We must be in the world attentive to the moment we are in, the people we are with, and God's action among us. The question we should be asking is not so much, what should we do to make a difference in the world? But rather, what is God doing? And how can we discern it? Jesus himself didn't strive to make a great difference. He didn't set out with ambition, um, ambitious goals to achieve, to solve every systemic injustice, to reform everything, and to perfect the world. He spent his time being present with people and with God, attentive to them and to God among them. Even at the end, when he knew his time was running out, Jesus didn't rush around to accomplish as much as he could. He waited, and he asked his disciples to wait with him. It is so hard to wait, especially when we are so used to working. 
Andrew Root and Blair Bertrand write that it is in our waiting, however, that we learn what the real, the true crisis is. The real crisis, the thing that we are supposed to toss and turn at night about, is the crisis of perceiving what the living God is doing. How do we discern God's action? How can we encounter the living God in all the world's affairs? I have noticed something this past week. I have noticed that since the horrific terrorist attacks of Hamas one week ago, ago and Israel's declaration of war against Gaza, many interfaith organizations have waited before speaking out about the violence in the Middle East. They needed time to figure out what to say by first attempting attending to the moment we are in, to their own reactions and feelings, and to the reactions and feelings of so many people they care about. As religious persons, I imagine they were also waiting to discern, amidst this human-made crisis, what God is doing, where God might be present. That is what I have been awaiting. In all the news I've been reading and seeing, I have been looking for some story of God's presence. I have not wanted to speak too soon because I am still waiting for the right story, a story that Jesus lives there in this moment among those people. Anxiety and anger have a way of committing us to a story where we, whether we are on one side or another, with our needs and wants, take center stage. Jesus' direction to the church, however, is to wait for the Lord to reveal the story that we cannot yet see, where God is acting. Waiting doesn't mean that we lack all sense of purpose or mission. It does mean, however, that our purpose is shaped by that for which we watch. In addition to a mission, the church needs what Andrew Root and Blair Bertrand call a watchword. We need watchwords to look out into the world for the living God. They help us to discern the ways God is acting in the world like lenses through which we look. Watchwords shape our attention so that we can see and be in the world. Early in the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. was helping to lead the bus boycotts. Things were not going well. As pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, King was pushing his people to do more, but they faced strong headwinds, and threats were becoming increasingly vicious. Late on January 27, 1956, the phone rang in King's home. With his wife and infant asleep, he answered the phone to hear, we're tired of your mess. 
And if you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow up your house and blow your brains out. This was not the first threat in his life, but it shook him to the core. He sat at his kitchen table and prayed to God. He confessed that his own actions and efforts were failing the mission. Lord, I am down here trying to do what is right, but I am afraid. I must confess I am losing my courage. In that time of prayer, King heard God speak to him, telling him to stand up and that God would be his strength. King heard God say to him, when there is no way, I will make a way. This became King's watchword, and in time it became the watchword of the civil rights movement. The movement went into the world to wait in front of buses, at diner counters, and other public places with the mission of bringing forth civil rights. They waited, attentively looking and preparing for God to make a way out of no way. The watchword conditioned them to be ready to see and respond to God's action in the world. As disciples of Christ, it is simply wrong-headed to set out to make a difference in the world. The church is called to be made different by Christ and to witness to the difference that Christ makes. As witnesses, we are called to wait watchfully. So what is your watchword? What is our watchword to help us discern how God is acting in the world and to make us Swarthmore Presbyterian Church here and now ready to serve? Amen.